Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast, sponsored by the Einstrong Foundation and the American branch of the International Law Association, ABILA. My name is Mayanna Dellinger. I'm the Law and Policy Director of the Einstrong Foundation. We research and support innovative solutions to climate change, education and global poverty. Today is August the 23rd, 2022. I'm interviewing Gvudni Nilsson from Iceland about her views on behavioral change in relation to climate change. Gvudni is an industrial engineer with a Master of Science degree from Tokyo Institute of Technology. She's also the co-founder and CEO of So Green, an Icelandic climate tech startup based out of her hometown in Reykjavik, Iceland. So Green focuses on scaling up climate solutions that are founded in social impact and community development in low-income countries. For the past decade or so, Gwuthni has been working as a program coordinator in the field of international development cooperation and humanitarian aid with the Red Cross movement. Welcome, Gwuthni. Thank you very much, Mayanna. Tell us, what is So Green? Well, SoGreen is a, an Icelandic startup that channels climate finance into powerful but overlooked climate solution, girls' education in low-income countries. Okay, great. And you're doing something interesting with climate change and other countries. Tell us what climate solution it is that you're developing. Yes, so, so, so the climate solution that we are focusing on, so SoGreen is set up to to focus on uh, climate solutions that are built on social um, empowerment and social impact. And the first solution that we're going to run with is the uh, ensuring girls' education in low-income countries. And that is a climate solution uh, simply because education provides girls with the knowledge and awareness of their rights leading to their empowerment and increased agency to make important decisions for themselves in their lives as girls and as grown-ups. So, for example, decisions about when to marry, when to start their family, how many children they want to have. Mm -hmm. And uh, girls that have education or are in school are less likely to be married off as children and less likely to have children as teenagers mm -hmm. and more likely to have fewer and healthier children. Mm -hmm. And so history tells us that when women are in charge of their sexual and reproductive health, uh, we tend to have fewer children because that is our decision and we are able to, to, to make that decision. And so in the case of low-income countries uh, where there are huge barriers to education, then by ensuring access to education at scale for girls, uh, not because it's a climate solution, just but because it's a human right, it will lead to countries being able to bend down their population curve faster. But, and you know, and with that, so any future consumption related emissions will go down. So that's why it is a climate solution. Mm -hmm. But like I said, we shouldn't be just supporting it because it's a climate solution. It benefits the climate simply as a co-benefit, but the transformative impact of girls' education is seemingly endless. You know, infant and maternal mortality rates go down. Educated mothers tend to be more informed about nutrition and health care. Their children are more likely to be vaccinated. I could go on and on. 
lots of benefits to education, that's for sure. Some people might see this as uh, sort of the Western world coming into low-income countries, trying to have them do population control or decide mm -hmm. over uh, women or try to make women do what we do in the Western world. Is this a type of population control you're trying to, to do? <laughs> exactly. Um, no, we see it as the opposite. Education is one way to ensure that women and girls are in charge of their own reproductive rights. When you have a girl who is married off as a child, as a 13-year-old child, to perhaps an older man, she is not in control of her own sexual and reproductive health in that marriage. She is just a child. Mm -hmm. So education is a form of making sure that these girls can empower themselves through education. Um, and when you talk about, for example, in secondary school in low-income countries, that's Uh, that's the age group where teachers tell tell you about sexual and reproductive health. They tell you about contraception. These things are not discussed in um, primary school. So when girls forego that part of the education system, um, especially in countries where these things are taboo, you know, and your mother or your grandmother, they wouldn't talk to you about condom use or things like this. So making sure that they have access to this education gives them puts them in the driver's seat of their own reproductive rights excellent that sounds like a good idea how do you actually implement this solution where do you get the money from ah well um well so so green is a an enabler so i come from my background is in humanitarian work so i've been working with the red cross for years focusing on um development cooperation. Um, and one of the things that I, I have focused on in my career is to ensure the education of girls. And I know firsthand how incredibly difficult it is for humanitarian organizations to fundraise. Mm -hmm. You know, we have 132 million girls around the world out of school today. Wow. Um, if, you know, you know, we aren't able through philanthropic activities or, or just, you know, official donor assistance from countries from the global north to the global south, we aren't able to, you know, bridge this gap. And so, and even though we have these humanitarian organizations that are complete experts at running projects that ensure education of girls, then what, what I always felt that there was a gap that needed to be filled and we needed to find a way for a more sustainable Um, revenue stream for these humanitarian organizations so that they could bring or scale up these important uh, projects. And so when, when the IPCC released their uh, 2018 report on 1.5 degrees, and it spoke about um, future female educational attainment, and it's Uh, how it is a factor in, in our growing of our populations. Um, we at SoGreen decided to let's see how we can do this. And so we calculate the climate impact. So we, we calculate how much uh, carbon dioxide, how many tons carbon dioxide equivalent we can avoid from being released in the air um, from 
increasing girls' education. And, and we use specific data for specific countries and even specific data to represent the rural population because that's the population we are working for. Mm-hmm. And um, then you turn in the international carbon markets where we are um, seeking the, the funding from, that's where you can sell one ton of carbon dioxide equivalent for as a carbon credit. Mm-hmm. So that's how we um, get the finance. And though the customers of carbon credits, it can be individuals, it can be organizations, companies, uh, even governments. So whoever has access to the carbon credit market, which is everyone, um, could actually purchase carbon credits uh, to offset their own emissions, uh, thereby funding these important climate solutions. That's amazing. Very interesting. Are you already selling carbon credits for educational use or are you starting it up or where are you in the process? Yeah, so we are implementing our first project in Zambia at the start of the next school year. So in January 2023. And we are just about to start selling the carbon credits. Nice. So Gwuthni, what are some of the positives and negatives of carbon offsets? Um, well, um, carbon offsets um, are traded on the carbon market and the carbon market is essentially it's an instrument that if used responsibly can really help us as a humanity to collectively reduce our emissions. However, if used irresponsibly, it can actually make climate change even worse. So, so if we unpack that, let's say we have a company that declares that they are on their sustainability journey, you know, they, that their products are perhaps more sustainable than their competitors. Um, and after having made such declarations, a responsible company will always have to have prioritized reducing its own emissions. And that means their total emissions um, throughout their entire supply chain. Um, and no company of course, is ever able to completely eliminate its emissions overnight. It will take time, uh, for example, to switch from dirty energy to clean energy and to reduce waste and so on. But but the goal will have to be this, to stay the course and always continue to reduce, reduce, reduce. And, and as fast as possible, because time is one of the most important factors in any climate action. So now after, after reducing, a, a company will have some remaining emissions um, and and a responsible company or an ambitious company will then decide to compensate for these emissions by purchasing carbon offsets, by purchasing carbon credits, because these remaining emissions, you know, no matter how small they are, they are still contributing to climate change. So the company will compensate by funding the reduction or removal of emissions somewhere else in the world. Um, to weigh out or, or neutralize, if you will, their remaining emissions. Um, and that's where carbon markets come in and carbon offsets. So the company will essentially buy one carbon credit from a green project for each ton of remaining emissions. Uh, and these carbon credits are generated by all kinds of projects around the world. Um, most commonly, we, we talk about afforestation projects, Uh, conservation projects and, and various green energy projects like windmill or solar. I mean, there's all kinds of green projects. So so in another way, and the way we look at it from, from So Green is that the carbon market is actually also just a mechanism to finance green projects that without additional financial contributions would not happen. Um, 
but but having said all this, the, the carbon market is certainly not flawless. Um, as an example, um, we see multiple companies making these decisions to go for carbon neutrality annually. So, so they declare we are carbon neutral in 2021 and they will declare they are carbon neutral in 2022. And for companies to be able to make such a claim, they will have had to have bought carbon credits that represent a reduction or a removal that has already happened. So it can't happen in the future. You can't plant a tree today and, you know, it will it will sequester in the next 60, 70 years. Um, but um, when companies do this, this this is a very self-serving way to approach climate action. Um, so if these were the only types of carbon credits a company would buy, because um, when you prioritize um, these reductions that have already happened, um, it, it increases the demand for green projects that are that are more quick fixes and projects that remove emissions from the atmosphere at the cost of projects that uh, might accumulate reductions in emissions over time. So even projects that would accumulate a much bigger reduction in emissions by 2050. And, and remember, I mean, that is our collective goal to reach carbon neutrality in, in 2050. But uh, it has to be clear that, that we need both. Um, we need both to reduce now and, and, and to sequester now. But we have to collectively, of course, turn the faucet off. We can't just, you know, attack an overflowing bathtub with buckets after buckets. No, that's so true. Where are most of these offsets actually done on the ground? Well, so these companies buy them, but where typically are the actual projects undertaken? Yeah, so so I know that some uh, carbon uh, credit programs, um, for example, in green energy, they have stopped allowing green energy projects where they have mostly been implemented in the global north. You know, because th that's where the most money is. That's where the most uh, use of electricity. Is. So these projects have been benefiting us in the global north. So thankfully, many uh, of the programs are now demanding that this is being done in the global south. And also because in the global north, uh, we know that green energy prices are falling. So it's it, it's not you know additional climate finance is not required. For, for these projects to, to happen. So, but additional climate finance is definitely required to, to make it happen in, in the global south. Right. And, and, but, but from the, the so green point of view, what we see, and on the topic of the global south and the global north, what we see as the biggest flaw of the carbon market is that it is not being applied in a way that benefits the people on the front lines of the climate crisis, you know, those vulnerable communities who are now already faced with drought after drought and flood after flood, resulting in crop failure and starvation, death and disaster. Um, and we see the rise of movement kids, the fighters for future kids, all these young climate activists uh, calling for climate justice. And, and that's why So Green focuses on powerful climate solutions that contribute to a world where all girls realize the rights to an education. And, and climate justice is placed at the heart of climate action. Great. Um, and we call on everyone to join us in that. Let's hope they will. That sounds mm -hmm. great. <laughs> Would be wonderful. Do you see this also as being a matter of helping them in relation to climate change? In other words, how does climate change affect women and girls disproportionate compared to men and boys? Well, we know that um, girls and women 
are already, you know, gender inequality already structures women and girls' marginalization in society. Mm -hmm. And climate climate change is a threat multiplier. Mm -hmm. So any inequality they experience, let's say in good times, they are just exacerbated in in bad times. And when climate change and the and, and natural disasters hit, mm-hmm. um, they have higher mortality rates as, uh, than men. They have longer. They, it takes them longer to recover because they often lack financial independence, and they have more limited access to resources. Um, they have higher rates of displacement and migration um, because of climate change. And of course, they're already at increased risk of sexual exploitation and gender-based violence. And and at times of crisis, these rates tend to go up. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, it's important to know that education is not only you know, it has all these benefits and, and, it, and it is also a climate solution, but it also, you know, it plays a crucial role in increasing community resilience to tackle the effects of climate change. So, so communities, uh, vulnerable communities in low-income countries, rural communities that are often hit with uh, disasters um, because of climate change, a community of uneducated people is, has, is much less equipped to tackle uh, their new reality than uh, people and children, women, girls, boys, men that have an education. Mm -hmm. And indirectly, you also help educate boys who become men and fathers about this. So it actually indirectly will help them too, right? Because educating these girls then get the knowledge, become mothers and hopefully pass on their knowledge. And it's not that, you know, we, of course, boys education is just as important. Mm -hmm. Um, It just hasn't been linked as strongly uh, to a climate impact as girls education. And, you know, in in the in the humanitarian world, you know, when when you're uh, focusing on ensuring education, uh, the fact remains that girls are more often without access to education mm-hmm. you know when when families in these communities are very poor and they might be so poor that they can't even you know you know save up money to pay school fees for their children and or even books if there are no school fees you know you need to buy mm-hmm. uniforms there's plenty of other costs related to education mm-hmm. and that's why poverty is such a huge barrier right. and and more often than you know it, when families are able to scrape together some money to pay school fees then um sadly but understandably they prefer to send their sons mm-hmm. um because their sons will be the ones to take care of them in the future mm-hmm. most often Mm-hmm. So it's it it is a survival. Um, it is a logical decision, but it's it's a painful one, and and you know because education is so crucial uh, in battling child marriage and teenage pregnancy, and families who are very vulnerable, poor, um, and their children, and they can't afford to send their children to school. Um, normally, you know, you you won't see you know, teenage girls uh, who are not going to school, simply just being at home. Um, yeah, yeah, they, they will help with the, the family and taking care of the children, fetching water and, and firewood and everything. But very often these girls are married off early mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the logical decision behind that is just, you know, one less mouth to feed. Mm-hmm. And when you're a parent in, you know, struggling to feed your, you know, six or seven children, um, often you make this painful logical decision to marry off your daughter so that you can feed the rest of the children. And often you think, you know, you might get an offer from a, a man that says, you know, I, I can take care of her. And, mm-hmm. and often they can. But even though these men are able to take care of their daughters, you know, a 14 year old child has no business being a wife. No, of course not. And that's sadly still the tradition in many places. Mm-hmm. What uh, if you could talk a little bit about what the state of education is in in African countries? I know you mentioned Zambia, but uh, is this a problem in, on the African subcontinent in general, or or what are the states of the state of education in yeah. Africa today? So, like I said, 132 million girls out of school globally. A huge proportion of that is in Africa. Um, basically. Low-income countries are more at risk of having low female retention rate in school. Uh, Countries that are hit by climate change are also more likely to have fewer children in school. And so when you think about Africa, these are countries, you know, this is the region where you have low-income countries, um, poor rural communities, and climate change is already not threatening them it's hitting them hard and it's it's been hitting them for years and decades so you know i mean in zambia just you have i think 27% of all girls in the country that graduate from secondary school hmm. and this is the whole country so when you think about the rural population where there is you know acute needs this this number you know drops way down and and you also in Zambia, I think something a lot around 29% of girls are already married by the age of 18. Wow. Um, and this is very similar for for many other um, climate vulnerable countries um, in the African region and, and elsewhere. What about in other places um, around the world? Do you see the problem being equally severe there? Um, well, I, I can't say that I'm as experienced in, in other countries of the world. My, my gut tells me that the African region is, uh, is where it's the, they have the most needs, but I, I can't be sure. I'm sorry. Right, right. I don't no. want to say anything that, I, that I'm not sure about. Right, right, right. No, of course not. But certainly a, a major problem in, in Africa. Very interesting. This is all very interesting, actually, Gwuthni. Why uh, is this climate solution being developed in Iceland? People uh-huh. might think that's interesting. It's such a little country so far away from most countries, actually, but certainly from very Africa. Very true, very <laughs> true. We, we are huge polluters, huge, you know, per capita, per capita Iceland is the biggest everything. Huh. Um, we have, I mean, we are a population of 350,000. It's a very wealthy country. And so per capita pollution is just, it's shameful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we do, uh, climate change is... is um, is often discussed and it's quite high uh, in the national dialogue. Hmm. So, um, and in my work for, for in the humanitarian field, of course, I've you know, climate change is already has been threatening um, the work of humanitarian organizations and making it more difficult for years and years. But the, I think, I mean, I mean, I believe that there's no coincidence that So Green was born in Iceland. 
We've been ranked the most gender equal country in the world 12 times in a row, according to the World Economic Forum. And, uh -huh. and as a society, we, we do tend to place gender equality at the forefront of most decision making. And so naturally, when we started thinking about, you know, climate solutions and climate crisis, how to tackle it, um, my co-founder and I thought, you know, what climate solutions center women and girls? Right. And, you know, when you learn that how powerful a climate solution girls education is, um, no turning back. You, you simply just want to implement it. Right. Wow. That's very interesting. Very interesting project. Also interesting, I think, is the fact that you just mentioned Iceland being a huge polluter. And uh, if you could comment on that a little bit, obviously, like you said, uh, the richer countries tend to have a higher per capita share of pollution. But I think we all thought Iceland was doing so well, along with other Scandinavian countries in reaching <laughs> net zero and having geothermal solutions to heating. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about the nation in general and your climate change results Where so to far? Start? Where yeah. to start, Mayanna? Yeah, I know. Um, I mean, so many things to unpack here. I mean, when you think about it, we are a country with, uh, you know, 90-something percent is hydropower. Mm -hmm. We have almost only green energy. Yeah. We have this bubbling geothermal water coming from the earth, which enable, enables us to heat our houses. Mm -hmm. The fact that in 2022, we still have not reached net zero or are lower, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's shameful. Mm -hmm. You know, we have such a, um, what's the word, like, our, you know, where we are starting from, it's way ahead of most other countries. Mm -hmm. We should be able to do this much quicker and lower our emissions much, much faster. Um, you, have, you have natural resources for sure. So what is it that does it? Is it the cars? Is it the electricity? Or what is it actually that then? I think, I mean, if we want to point it to something, it's just consumption. Hmm. You know, it's, yeah. that's the that's what we do in the global north. We consume way more than we have to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, we drive more than we need to. Mm -hmm. We eat diets that are not environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. We fly a lot. We, you know, but but that's also where you know we have these big pollution uh, companies. Right. In, in Iceland, we have a lot of aluminium smelters, uh, and yes. <laughs> ironically, they are there because we. You know, we, we have all of this cheap energy mm -hmm. and you need a lot of energy to produce aluminium. Mm -hmm. So that's one one point. But I think it's, I mean, as in the global north, climate change is our fault. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. Right. No doubt about it. Um, and the African region is responsible for something like three or four percent of the global emissions. Right. You know, it's it's yeah. just so it's staggering, frustrating. It? Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and and they are bearing the brunt mm -hmm. of the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And you know, the Horn of Africa is now experiencing unprecedented droughts, mm -hmm. malnutrition, um, hunger, starvation, and you know, we 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 need to. I mean, if we want to think about it selfishly, you think about, you know, what's happening there now will hit at home at right. a later date. Right. But that's no excuse. We should support um, everyone in the world to tackle climate change, especially since it's our fault. Mm -hmm. um, and making sure also that, um, you know, 
Af many, many countries in Africa, they still have, uh, they yet have to, uh, they will continue to grow their economies. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the later date in the future, you know, when we need to support them so that when they, when they do have their, um, I don't know, big investments for, you know, production mm -hmm. and, and their consumption goes up, mm -hmm. that we have actually done our best to support them in growing their economies in mm -hmm. a way that sustains their development and doesn't um, come back to bite them in the ass, you know, because it will be fuel, <laughs> fossil fuel economy. We need right. to make sure that they have a green economy. Yeah. And we need to do our best to change our polluting yes. economy yeah. to a green one right yeah. away. And to help them do the same, if we at all yeah. can do so, in yeah. of course in fair ways. Yes, I agree completely. Very good. <laughs> Very interesting uh, issues here, Gwudni. Uh, we wish you the best of luck. What? Where can listeners see more about you? Can you mention your website? Um, yes, our website is sogreen.is. Okay. Um, we're also on LinkedIn. Okay. And um, yes, yeah. as so green. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mayama. Nice to talk to you. You too. Today, I interviewed Gwudni Nielsen of So Green in Iceland. Thank you to David Dellinger for being the audio engineer on this and past podcasts. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other podcast episodes examining climate change and global poverty issues.